Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Leslie Ann Noel. Dr. Noel has over 20 years of experience in design education and has taught in a variety of contexts, such as in primary and secondary education, corporate boot camps, international development with small business owners in different countries and at several universities. She has worked in the Caribbean, East Africa, and the USA. Her research and teaching draws on the fields of design, anthropology, business and education in her teaching and research. Her work focuses on the experiences of people who are often excluded from research and on building greater critical awareness among designers and design students. Her current research is situated in the fields of civic innovation, social innovation, and public health. In the fall of 2020, she joined North Carolina State University and is assistant professor. Before joining NCSU, she was Associate Director for Design Thinking for Social Impact and Professor of Practice at the Taylor Center for Social Innovation and Design Thinking at Tulane University. She was a lecturer at the D School at Stanford University and at the University of the West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. And of course, being Bajan Guyanese, that's the most essential part of that entire introduction. I always got to give a shout out to my fellow West Indians, wherever we are. And it's a pleasure to have Dr. Noel on the deep dive with me. How are you? Hi, Philip. I'm well. I did not know about your Bajan and Guyanese bit until your shout out. So, you know, it's safe. It's always nice to connect with Caribbean people. Absolutely. I um, It's on my luggage when I travel. I got the flags. I was um, I flew out to San Diego by the time that we're having this conversation. It'll be longer when people listen to it. But about two, three weeks ago. And the woman at JFK was also a fellow Bajan. Mm-hmm. So she was very, she recognized the flag right away and I recognized her look and we had a really great conversation and I breezed through the check-in. So it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Make it work for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When, when you can make it work, you got to make it work. But I told you before we started recording that I was really looking forward to this conversation for a variety of reasons. The West Indies and the Caribbean is actually part of that, to be part of it's facetious, but part of it is real, because I think, and we're going to get to this later, there's so much imagining or reimagining that needs to happen mm-hmm. in not just the West Indies, but they're a good proxy for a lot of things that I think about, primarily because of their proximity to the United States and formal colonial perspective and all that kind of stuff. But Before we get to that part of my long list of prompts and questions, I really want to start in a place talking about design a little bit more generally, because it's a term that has become somewhat ubiquitous. It's a catch-all for a lot of, I think, what people think about the world. They'll use design quite often and widely. And do you think there are drawbacks? to this sort of ubiquity in the way we just kind of toss around the word design 
for someone who's actually a highly credentialed, trained, and design thinker? Uh, I don't think that there are drawbacks. I think we as designers have to understand that, yes, everybody designs. You know, it is a capacity that everybody has. And then some of us go deeper in design. And I actually think, I mean, personally, I've been able to benefit from the way people throw around the word design, you know, and I think that it does create some opportunities for all of us who are trained in design, the fact that so many people are now so interested in this field that we are all experts in, you know, um, there's an analogy that I like to use a lot. I haven't used it in a few months, but there was a period I was really digging deep into it, which is about an analogy around cooking. And if we think about it, kind of like everybody knows how to cook, but some people are chefs or bakers or, you know, people have different specializations of cooking. Some people go to school to really specialize in certain areas of cooking. And so we could probably think about it like that with design. Everybody can design and some people deepen their specialization in design, which means that sometimes we'll use a particular kind of language when we're talking to other people who have the same depth as us. And other times we're going to use a, a different kind of language that might be a little more accessible to the general audience and general public. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't think that there's a problem. I think that we can take advantage of the fact that now people understand what we do a little bit better. And no, I, it definitely does does answer the question because I think broadly speaking, is something that, like you said, it pops up everywhere. And which gives us a chance to interrogate both the formal ways in which it moves in our world. The, you know, like I mentioned, words like credentialed and there's academic and there's business applications, it's everywhere. And then there's the informal ways in which people move in these spaces. And I think that opens us up to the notions and ideas of inclusion and how that plays a part in how we think about design. Oftentimes, it does appear to be very top-down. Mm-hmm. And that can be top-down from the academy. That can be top-down from institutions. That can be top-down from nation-states. You know, it's very Western slash Northern Hemisphere, European-based, whatever geography we want to attach to it, often looking to solve problems or address things elsewhere. So... How do you navigate that space of bringing not only other voices, but other ways of being into design spaces that have not traditionally done so? So I guess to answer that, I mean, we could have a few hours and we could talk about that for a really long time. But maybe to answer that, we have to think about like, what's a specific context? Like, so I... I suppose I operate in, uh, well, education, so in the classroom. And then uh, I'm doing a lot of design. I don't know if to call it design education in community spaces or if it's design practice in community spaces. But a lot of my work then um, is also becoming very community focused. So that's the other space. So these are like the two spaces that I'm looking at and say, well, how do we make sure that there's, there are many more perspectives Right. But actually, I want to backtrack a little bit because you're talking about an issue that I am 
grappling with, right? I'm, I struggle sometimes to write about it because, you know, like sometimes I will write something and I say, well, okay, well, is the problem design or is the problem society or the place that design is, right? And maybe it's a little bit of both, you know, that design in fact reflects, the field of design reflects the society that we're in and reflects kind of the predominant worldviews of this place that we're in, which then that prevailing worldview is Eurocentric, is sometimes racist, is so sometimes like I will start off a sentence saying, well, okay, and that's why design is racist. And then I have to kind of backtrack and say, well, okay, is the thing racist or is it the people who are doing the thing racist? You know, is the thing Eurocentric or is it the people that are doing the thing Eurocentric, right? That said, I can't really disentangle the two things. And so it means in the way that I do my work, I am aware of the Eurocentrism or the focus on the dominant culture, whatever that dominant culture is. And then I'm consciously embedding maybe devices and things in my own practice that will decenter the dominant narrative. You know, so it could be that, let me see what example. Well, I mean, so like, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more, but the positionality wheel that I've created to help people to talk about positionality is a way of kind of decentering one voice or, you know, kind of, ensuring that we don't have that kind of sameness because sometimes that's the idea when we talk that we think that there needs to be that sameness right and so in the way that I'm teaching I am trying to really push back against sameness and make sure there is space then for many narratives for many voices for many stories and then sometimes it can get confusing you know but in the way that I'm teaching, I'm trying to make sure people understand that there isn't one way, okay? And then, so in the community-engaged work that I do, the way I might be addressing the issue that you refer to is it could be in the composition of who's in the meeting, for example. There was one meeting that someone invited me to lead a design meeting around policing, And immediately as we started to plan the meeting, I said, well, okay, actually, I don't want the majority of the people to be police, you know, and we started to, you know, so we we started to very carefully design who was in the room to make sure there would be many perspectives. And so, you know, these are like some, these are just some things that I am doing. Other people will have different ways of doing this, you know, like a kind of basic way that, that a lot of people work is well, I say basic without any kind of judgment, but you know, the first thing that you can do if you teach, because a lot of my examples are around teaching, obviously, right? If you teach, the, the very least you can do is look at your reading list and see whose voice is represented in your reading list. And like the simplest thing, even if you didn't change your reading list, you would acknowledge whose voices are there so that people could think about whose voices are not there. Right. So, you know, that would provoke a little bit of a more critical reading of the the information. And then the next step is to make sure that the, the voices are more plural. And, you know, well, I could go on and on and on. But, you know, like these are just some ways to think about yeah these issues in design. But I think those ways are quite critical to the work that we all do in, in the example 
that you gave about the workshop meeting mm -hmm. that you were going to have, and it was about policing. And you obviously don't want a whole room filled with police or police adjacent, right? And I'm only using that as an example, but I referenced this even in the news, for example, right? You turn on, let's call it CNN. There's usually the catch-all for all of our critique on the news, since clearly Fox News is lunatic town, so I don't even watch it. <laughs> and they're awful, so there's no value there. Oh, you don't have to like hold your tongue on Fox <laughs> News. They're absolutely atrociously awful. And it is not news. It is merely racist, white supremacist propaganda masquerading as news. Mm -hmm. So my commentary, so anybody has beef with that, they can reach out to the show directly. But nonetheless, <laughs> CNN, for example, will talk about, I don't know, let's call it Afghanistan. And there won't be one Afghan, Afghan yes. in the conversation. Yes. So bringing these voices to the table sometimes is one of the most revolutionary acts one can do when it happens so rarely. I think those of us who think about curation and design in our process, even simple as me putting together the show, there's an intentionality to making sure that I'm bringing voices like yours rather than other voices, mm -hmm. right? And I tell everybody all the time, I can do whatever I want, right? Because it's my show. It's your show. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so I have complete autonomy to do whatever I want to do, kind of like in Boomerang. I have complete autonomy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think the positionality point that you bring up is critical, and it kind of ties into another point I have in my notes here is the, the expansion of that knowledge base. Like, how do we do the work to expand what is a, what I'm calling assumable knowledge? Yeah, right? what, is, what is perceived as authority. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And and then to the, your other point, like, what do we dismiss? You know, the things uh -huh. we dismiss often tell us as much as the things we include. So how do you wrestle with that? So, you know, I run or co-run a book club where that I started with um, a colleague of mine, Renata Marksley-Town, and now we run it with two other people, Jananda Lima and Mariana Braga, actually all Brazilian. I, I only work with Brazilians almost, right? But um, we started that book club because, so Renata and I are both academics, and we ran a conference about plurality, and decoloniality and stuff like that. And then we were like really disturbed by everybody's references, you know, like everybody's using the same references. Um, we're talking about epistemic freedom and stuff like that, but we're still only referring to people from one geographical area and all that. And so we started this book club to expand the conversation around whose knowledge is valid. And in our book club, we only focus on people outside of Europe and North America. I, we might have had one, I think we had one session on bell hooks. So in more than a year, bell hooks is the only American that we've allowed <laughs> into our space. But where I'm going with that is that how do we expand the platform? We need to find people and talk about them and their work, right? So there's a project that I did when I was at Tulane where 
I assigned my students interviews with designers all over the world because, you know, I just, so some, you know, you, you kind of have to have this philosophy of just kind of, this is a change I want to make or not that you kind of, this is, this is the way that I was acting. Right. So I reached out to people, a lot of people in my network, I suppose, but I reached out to people in Africa and Asia in the United States, yes, but only if they were not from the dominant culture in some way. So maybe they were non-white, they were not straight, they were, I don't know, women, yeah, you know. And so we created a podcast from these student interviews and then started to use some of these interviews as texts in later classes, you know, because you can't then say, oh, well, People only write about white men in design history and just leave it like that. You have to figure out what's the active thing that you're going to do to change and expand the body of knowledge, right? And then another thing that, I mean, I'm not the only person who's doing this, I'm sure, but another thing that I am doing now is, okay, yes, I'll cite some of the people that <laughs> maybe you're expecting to cite, but I'm going to throw in some names that you've never heard of Right. And I have a friend in South Africa kind of like on speed dial. And, you know, I'll be like, OK, I'm talking about this thing. Tell me who is writing about this, talking about this, you know. And so I will always include these additional voices, local voices talking about local context in the arguments that I'm writing about. And it doesn't always go down so well, you know, like. We started off our meeting talking about an article that I was trying to edit. And one of the reviewers wrote back and said, well, who are all of these people that you're referring to or something like that? And I'm like, when I read the comment, I thought, you don't have to know who these people are for what they're saying to be valid or to make sense. Right. But I, you know, I just thought about that, you know, the, the, when I read that feedback, I had to really reflect on the gatekeeping that happens in academia. And so I will continue to refer to these people, you know, I'll continue to have the students make connections with establish, get information from, you know, people who are outside of what's considered the dominant narrative of design. And I think that the more and more and more people that we do this, you know, that do this as we draw on our own people, ways of thinking, as we put that into the work that we do and we are public about it, it'll hopefully expand the way people talk and think about design. And, you know, even though I'm saying this, I also know that there will be other academics who might be saying that, these approaches that I'm talking about might be like the most superficial way of starting it, starting this kind of work. But it's what we can do or what I can do and other people can do other things as well. And I mean, this really opens up like really such a big world because as you were talking about finding one, how does one get into this book club? Like this sounds like the most amazing book club, number one. So I'm going to Though not Brazilian, I want to <laughs> figure out a way to get at least a list, at least send a brother the list of books that have been passed through this book club. That would be amazing. It's a little um, plug for me to be included. But as you were having that conversation or kind of sharing that, I thought about this random moment where 
I discovered like Sylvia Winter's work for the first time, for example. And yeah. and Sylvia was in our book club. Not she wasn't there, but we featured Sylvia two weeks ago, I believe. And you know, that's amazing because it's both illuminating and it's also disappointing for me because I was like, well, I consider myself fairly well read, far more than the average person. I'm from the West Indies and I'd never heard of her. Mm-hmm. You know, until 18 months ago, maybe 18 months ago. How did you hear about her? It was really quite random, to be honest. Like, I think I like clicked on a thing that led to another thing that sent me to another thing. Mm-hmm. And in one of those things, her work was referenced. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, my thing might have been like that. I don't know how Sylvia Winter's work came onto my radar, but like you, when I saw the reference to work, I'm like, but I'm Trinidadian. How do I not know who this woman is? Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So actually in our book club right now, we are looking at, um, I'll say the semester. We move geographically in the book club. So right now we're in the Caribbean. So we started off with Sylvia Winter, then Stuart Hall. And the next one is about a Puerto Rican radical feminist, Aurora Levens Morales. Yeah. Okay. Stuart Hall, I knew. (laughs) No, Stuart Hall, I knew Mm -hmm. for a very long time. So that's the patriarchy working, right? Like, gonna know him. Mm -hmm. Other folks didn't know, right? And we're all, no one knows everything, Mm -hmm. right? That's clear and needs to be said. There's no one person is gonna hear about every single thing. That's less the point. But I think the critical point is, is that why are there certain voices that all of us kind of know about, right? Like, even if you're not interested in something, there are certain names that bubble up to the surface. So clearly there's a standing in how we rank knowledge, how do we assess it, what gets centered versus other things. And one of the things I think about design is that it should help us see the world, right? And uncover things. And how do our processes of bringing new voices and knowledge and names that we should reference, in your estimation, how does that help us see things and uncover things in a more effective way versus the status quo? Right. So there are a few different ways that I've described this. And I think the thing that is at the tip of my mind is a little bit transactional. <laughs> but I mean, it's the, it's the thing that I can think about now, right? And uh, so trans, in Design Justice, I don't actually remember where in the book, but there's a point in the book where Sasha Costanza Chuck writes that something like transformation happens at the margins. And it's that... We have to bring in many different voices, almost because these different voices are going to help tell us what needs to change and where change needs to happen, right? You can't, you don't change things around the status quo, or you hardly, I mean, I could I could say differently, you hardly change, make change around the status quo, right? The status quo is kind of happy. Maybe things serve them well enough. Or, I mean, maybe you will make changes around the status quo, but those become like really kind of basic changes to anything, any system, any. But it's like when we 
are then working to support the people who are more at the margins, design gets better, right? More people get served well. So if we think of curb cuts, for example, you know, that are supporting people who use wheelchairs, everybody else benefits from that. You know, the person with the pram, the person on a bicycle, the skateboarder, you know, everyone just benefits because we actually, the person in the wheelchair was able to point out to us where the system needed some work needed to be changed, right? And so the thing about bringing in all the many voices is that many voices bring in new questions. And that's what the, the issue is. You know, it's like almost like the status quo can't really highlight for us new questions or, or those new the questions that the status quo raises, we'll deal with those fairly quickly. But it's as we bring in all of these other different voices and saying other and also kind of like a little conscious of othering, right? But it's like all of these many different voices together will highlight different issues than if one group was just involved in the in identifying issues and stuff like that. So that's like one reason. And, I, you know, I, I said that and I, I do also note that that's a little bit transactional where almost like, well, let's bring in diversity so that we can figure out where to fix things. Right. But it's, it's a thing that, that's on my mind. I'm teaching a, a class right now about equitable futures. And so that's what I've been reading about recently. But I mean, there's a lot of transaction built into how these systems operate, all systems, particularly when we're in a predominant cultural framework of global capitalism, which I had this later, but I'm going to jump into it now because uh, if I, I fear that if I don't, it might get lost in some of my other questions. So it's not going to be the smoothest segue, but I want to cling to this idea of new voices, bringing in voices from the margins. And that's been something that I've talked a lot, uh, talked about a lot, even in a, in a previous show, our tagline literally was, you know, culture from the margins that we were talking about bringing in cultural movements from the margins where people aren't paying attention. But, you know, I started off a little bit of this conversation, you know, referencing, you know, my West Indian background, my mom's from Barbados, my dad's from Guyana, you know, you're from Trinidad. And what I'm often struck by is that the Caribbean, the West Indies, and I'm speaking very broadly, is one of those places that as someone who cares so deeply about it, would benefit from thinking about their future in another place because so much of their existence is rooted in transaction because it's a, a function of, by and large, tourism and service industry, mm -hmm. right? So wealthy people primarily, to some degree, come mm -hmm. to enjoy the location, i.e. beautiful beaches and sun and all the rest, and service by primarily black and brown people, right? So they are rooted in transaction. You know, how can we think about their voices in creating something that's different given climate change and sustainability and all of the things that are happening all around us? They're in a decolonial state, right? Like Barbados is finally, queen is no longer head of state, right? Like 
50 plus years later. So they're grappling with so many parallel issues that I see happening in design and the things that you talk about. So West Indian to West Indian, fix it. How do we solve this problem? <laughs> <laughs> well, now let me go into my trinity act and say, oh gosh, boy, ask me something easier. <laughs> <laughs> but let me see. So one thing, though, is you have to give the Caribbean credit for leading decoloniality. Not just the Caribbean. I guess the Caribbean and Latin America. Or I don't know if it's the other way around, Latin America and the Caribbean. But, you know, decolonial conversations, there are many decolonial conversations that are led by people from the Caribbean. You know, and like there was something I was writing the other day and... I I just looked up some fact, something around liter- English literature versus literatures in English. And UE, the University of the West Indies, was the first institution in the world to use the term literatures in English. Now, somebody might fact check me and say that this is wrong, but this is what I found, according to the search engine, that literatures in English was a term that started in the Caribbean right, to differentiate from literature about English. And that that was a decolonial position, you know, saying that, okay, we we make literature in English. We're not making literature about English, right? And, you know, if you read what other Caribbean people write in a decolonial voice, you know, it is really inspiring to people anywhere on the margins, you know, whether it is for the women's movement, the anti-racist movement. So there are like some huge voices coming out of the Caribbean and Latin America. Right now, I'm just in love with this lady, a Puerto Rican. The next book club is about this work by this Puerto Rican author that I mentioned earlier, Aurora Levins Morales. And it's Essays for Radicals. And every single essay is so Caribbean. I mean, she is in Puerto Rico, but Puerto Rico is a colony, right? And so she's writing from this decolonial perspective, and it's a voice that you find repeated by other people in the Caribbean. All right, let me see now how I could get back to your question about fix it. <laughs> and the fix it is a little facetious. Like, I know. <laughs> I'm very conscious of the fact that I was born here. Mm-hmm. So even when I go back home and I spend time in Barbados and I'm really interested primarily in Barbados. I've spent a much less time in Guyana. It's the awareness that you're from a place, but not of a place. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I think, people like myself, first generation American, you know, West Indian families, particularly in New York, like I joke around with my friends that I didn't know a Black person that wasn't West Indian until I went to Howard. Right. <laughs> that was my first time talking to a Black person where I ask you where you're from and you're telling me you're from Alabama. America. Georgia. Like, yeah, like you're like America. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm trying to yes. get to an island somewhere. Yes. Right. So yes. that fix it comes from that from a place, but not of a place, but not wanting to like parachute in yes. and quote unquote solve things, but also recognizing that. You know, like I've written about Barbados in particular, and I'm like, this place should be, it is, but should even be further in front of where the rest of the world is on so many issues. And maybe it is. So one thing that I I kind of 
have to emphasize, which you will probably identify with, you know, all of us who are, we're operating in this kind of in-between space, right? And that changes our perspective on things, right? And so you are a Caribbean person, you know, you're Caribbean American, but actually you will see the world through an American point of view. And you are now then in this in-between space where you're going to see both points of view, right? But you are American um, still. And so that will affect the way you read the Caribbean as well. You know, like, so I'm now also in that kind of in-between space, less of an in-between space maybe because I'm not American and... uh, the U.S. government reminds me that all the time. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm really not American, you know, and may not stay in America. We'll eventually, we'll probably go back to Trinidad, right? So, you know, my ties to Trinidad might be closer or stronger. And as I go back, I find myself maybe reading Trinidad through more of an American lens. And However, I have been reflecting on things like quality of life. You know, there there are ways that we can read the world and ways that we have to see that, okay, actually, maybe this life is not, this life, meaning the one that we live in now in the U.S., might not be the life that we think it is, as well as the life that people, the lives that people live in the Caribbean might not be what we think it is from outside. You know, because like I was just thinking about the quality of life of a lot of people that I know in the Caribbean and or in Brazil, another place that I spend a lot of time, right? And how far superior that quality of life sometimes is to the quality of life here, even though these people don't have money, even though they're in these transactional service jobs or, you know, but... The transaction is a different transaction because people are interested in relationships or people are interested in connectedness or, you know. So anyway, that, that's like a whole different tangent. But I really don't have answers about kind of like what do we do next in the Caribbean, you know. And even if I had been thinking about something, the pandemic has just so radically changed the reality of everyone so you know you could say well okay why don't we become a knowledge something 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 and and you know it's it's like everything has changed people's priorities have changed you know and then yeah so i i can't think about that what i've been thinking about you know how to apply design and you know i'm really rooted in design education so how to apply the work that I do as a designer in the Caribbean, I have been exploring education, then design education with different aims in the Caribbean. So design education curricula based on building what are called um, 21st century skills, which are like, I don't know, grit is the one that everyone remembers, you know, but those kind of psychology, the kinds of mindsets that are tied to success to flexibility to agility to so I've been looking at that I think that the I've been very interested in a a focus on the future 
and that is supposed to prepare people for change, you know, help people envision change. And I think that those kinds of conversations are really important in the Caribbean, you know, to get people to actively and agentially, that's not the correct word, but, you know, with agency, you know, act on and imagine futures for themselves. Right. And then the other thing that I've been doing with design is trying to see, well, how can we use the design process to facilitate conversations between people? So like the community type of engaged work. Now, this one, I haven't I haven't actually done it in the Caribbean. I only did this kind of stuff in New Orleans, which is the northernmost part of the Caribbean. (laughs) Right. But, um, you know, I'm hoping to explore that kind of stuff in Trinidad in the future and then I I often have to kind of step back and say well this kind of stuff you're talking about maybe people are already doing you know and so when I kind of stay from the outside and say well I want to do this in Trinidad that in itself is a kind of colonizing or yeah you know, that's a position with a bit of a power dynamic yeah that I need to be aware of right so maybe things don't need to be fixed <laughs> maybe things yeah. need to be fixed here and they have it, you know, like I have a friend in Trinidad who has no money at all and lives maybe the best life, right? Um, someone's always given him some food. He works for people. He never needs anything because he's such a generous person, right? And maybe if he was here, he would starve, you know, he would. Yeah. So maybe it's that things need to be fixed here and not there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's an amazing frame to think about it, right? And there is that wrestling that you're aware of. And I think you put it perfectly when you talk about those in-between spaces. And it and it made me think about the myriad of, of in-between spaces in the sense that, you know, when referred to as American, that that shit offends me. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I know what, what I know what one means, but I always bristle at the mention of it because I'm on the Malcolm X, right? Like if mm-hmm. a, a cat has kittens in an oven, it doesn't make them biscuits, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I think we're many of us are in these in between spaces because we are operating under these systems of capitalism, of empire, and Blackness itself puts us in an in-between space, in an American mm-hmm. construct. You know, how American is Blackness? Yeah. How does one feel? We all root for the Black person at the Olympics, but then sometimes I'm like, oh, I ain't from here, right? <laughs> but I still, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, I still want want to see U.S. men's basketball team or whoever it is get the gold medal, mm-hmm. even though I'm not really standing for the national anthem and all the rest of that, right? So putting all that aside, I want to jump to that future that you mentioned, but highlight this piece of it or ask this question that, you know, design is is looking out, right? It looks out into the future and, and tries to determine what that looks like, whether we use speculative design or, you know, other types of language and words. But we still have to be really focused on that, on our present and even in our on our past. So how do you tie those notions together oftentimes when we're not looking at those sort of inclusive present and past that we've kind of talked about throughout the conversation? Because that's not doing that. It's going to impact mm-hmm. our future. So how do we tie all that together if we can? 
Hmm, that's a good question. Because you're making me stop and think about practice, right? Because I mean, there are things that I'm doing that maybe I'm maybe I'm tying this stuff together and maybe I'm not doing it that well. But I, I'll describe how I might do a futures kind of exercise and maybe that could help. Yeah. I love these kind of descriptions. I'm all, I'm all excited. <laughs> I'm going to be taking more notes. <laughs> this is awesome. All right. So... This is like learning for me. <laughs> yeah. So when I was doing my research to prepare for my fieldwork, my, my PhD fieldwork, right, I found something called critical utopian action research. Well, I started to look at stuff around the futures, became aware, like many other people, of the lack of diversity actually in the portrayal of the future. Knew that I was going to be working with either working with for that fieldwork or I knew that I wanted to always work with people like me then, you know, which is dangerous actually. But, you know, that, that's the work that I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to work with people of color, maybe people from the Caribbean, people who also perceive themselves at the margins and then do this work around futures with them, right? And so like, how am I tying the past to the future or, or not how am I doing it, how am I creating space for that conversation to happen, is maybe by ensuring that we don't forget about some of the oppression and the marginalization and the all of these things that have held us back, both in the present and the past, so that, you know, we start off, it's almost like, I mean, this is a grand way of describing it, and it's not this grand, but it, it is like, futures grounded in critical theory, right? Where we can see, or, or futures grounded in a critical consciousness, which is what Paulo Freire writes about, you know, so that it's futures grounded in that awareness of the barriers that we are facing. And therefore, if we're really aware of oppressive forces and barriers and things like that, then we could figure out what's the future that we need to address that. And so I'm not just trying to have people think about the future just to explore new technology and like, oh my goodness, what look at what this AI and blockchain and whatever can do. It's not just about that. It has to be about, okay, how are we taking stock of where we came from, the things that are creating barriers for us now, and then how are we designing out those barriers moving forward? Right. And then, I mean, what I should emphasize, though, is like right now, some of the classes that I teach are like really in a, a conceptual slash theoretical space. Nobody is actually doing a project. <laughs> They're classes about conversations and concepts and ideas that maybe some of the students might take into their other studio classes. But my class is not a studio class. So when I say something like, this is how I do something. You know, you have to kind of put stick a stick a pin in it or take it with a grain of salt and say, well, okay, but actually she doesn't teach a, a studio class. I yeah, teach a class. Those, yeah, I just teach a class. Those are the class. most important classes. Well, that's, well I, I'm not saying that my class is the most important class. But, you I'm know, saying I, that. <laughs> it's a class to make sure that people are thinking about questions that they might not have the space to explore in their studio class, right? So, like... I could ask a really specific question, like I'm holding a water bottle in my hand and I could ask a question in the class that they might forget to ask in the studio class where I ask, 
what happens when the person who's holding the water bottle, you know, their race changes or their gender changes or, you know, and maybe they'll never have to reflect on that in their studio class because they're moving towards that finished product. But I'm trying to create some spaces where we do, a, we have a lot more questioning about how do all of these things really impact maybe how we practice the things that we use, you know, and, and I'm doing this in different ways. Like what I just mentioned, I haven't done that, I think, in any of my classes at this time. I did that in a class two or th about three years ago, right? The one thing I did this semester that went really, really, really well is, well, this class that I'm teaching is about equity. And the design problem we focused on was design practice from an you know the, what are the inequities that some designers face and the students worked in like really small groups with one group is focusing on race the other one focusing on gender the other one focusing on disability but then the guests who came into the class worked in really small groups with these students and talked about their experiences as designers from this lens you know so it was the first time that students really got to talk about issues of race as designers you know what are the the where are the designers suffering some kind of oppression maybe not feeling any at all you know what are the issues around gender and then of course the issues around disability we had a designer with a hearing disability come in and talk and now again that was the first time that the students were able to then really understand deeply as deeply as they could in that short session, yeah. the perspective of this person. Absolutely. And asking the questions and building those sort of critical reasoning skills, is it's one of the biggest deficits I find in society today, right? That people have, very, people in the broadest context have very little capacity to think critically about things. So yeah. the classes and the opportunities that we have to put that at the forefront is always why I'm like, look, this is the best thing we can be doing, right? Because I, I went to a, this is in high school, an architectural school and, you know, well, it was a science and technology engineering school and I studied architecture and, you know, there's so many things that we just, it wasn't just all about building materials is mm. my point, right? It wasn't just all about, in 1986 it was because that's all they thought about. But as I got older and started to do my own thing, I realized how much design affected, like architectural design affected the lived experience that we, that we all had, particularly in a big city like New York, yeah. right? And you could see that people weren't asking questions about That's how it. this impacted people, right? Yes. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of questions. So yeah, and, and that's <laughs> what my point is, you know? So as designers, we have the potential to have so much impact and we have to be asking these questions. You know, if we're not asking these questions, we're not doing our work well, right? And so maybe the engineers won't be trained to ask these questions. But because design is in, again, an in-between space, right? We are dealing with issues around psychology and behavior. And, you know, we're in a little bit in the humanities, a little bit in sociology or the social sciences. It's like we have to then have the skills to ask these questions because maybe we're the ones who are engineering adjacent and can, you know, kind of 
push the conversations a little bit deeper as things are made, you know, and I'm making it about engineering, but it's not only about engineering, but it's like we are in these so many in-between spaces that if we have the skills to ask those questions, then the questions will be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And even what is considered the hard sciences, right? Like we Mm -hmm. go through this all the time as to, I've been seeing memes about like, quantitative versus qualitative Mm -hmm. and what we value versus other things. And, you know, it allows the new age monsters of the world, the Elon Musk of the world and others to dominate the story because they're tech people, right? And they know their future is the future we should be holding on to versus other futures. And I'm like, screw that guy. We're going to make a different future. You know? (laughs) Yeah. And somebody (laughs) in the team has to ask these questions, you know, even if like, I won't hold it against Elon Musk if he forgets those questions. Right. But somebody around him, around Mark Zuckerberg, around, you know, and somebody has to ask these questions. And I think maybe it's someone with a design background who will have access Right. Yeah. So, you know, as we're trying to figure out the UX experience of something, we can say, hey, but what about this issue? Right. Oh, and yeah. So that's, that's the way I'm kind of building my classes these days. And I always say, and, and you've proven me correct, that my guests tend to be far more gracious and kind than I could ever be. Because, you know, you're trying to like find and give some grace to someone like Elon Musk. And I'm like, <laughs> at the end of the day, that dude is a white South African guy. That's all I need to know about, <laughs> oh about Elon Musk. He's pre-apartheid, you know. And, oh and, gosh, no, and you don't lose, you don't shed that overnight. <laughs> and I'll leave it there. I had a bunch of other stuff to get to, but I'm not going to get a chance because we have two more segments that I do have to get to on oh, the show. Boy. Okay, that's it. <laughs> and I should say, some of my friends are white South African. <laughs> not so, some that's some like of mine too, team, right? <laughs> Some of mine are too. One of my favorite bands in the world is led by a white South African, but he's different, you know? So shout out to Dave Matthews. You're different, Dave. Oh, yeah. I always say that you're my, you're my exception to the rule. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to get to Off the Dome and the drop. And Off the Dome are just some, well, in this case, three Mm -hmm. rapid fire questions is the first thing that comes to your mind. These are harmless. So no need to be nervous about them. And the first question is, is this, and maybe this is one that comes deep from me, but it might, you might relate to this in that I feel that like my parents and other folks have no clue really what I do for a living, but they always ask me like, what do you do? So what is your default answer to people who ask you what you do when you know they have no idea and they won't understand it, even if you explain it? Oh, goodness. Like, I, I, for me, I would just say I'm in consulting because <laughs> it's just easier. <laughs> I facilitate conversations. <laughs> That's your answer? <laughs> when people yeah, won't understand? It, it, it just leaves them with more questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for years I lived in a, um, I lived for a building in 10 years, for 10 years, and I think my neighbors had no idea what I did and I and it was in Trinidad and we were pretty close and everything but yeah I I don't have a default answer now I can say stuff like I write but I'll say I'm a designer but that leads to the next question what kind of designer and I can never yeah. never answer clothes that. you know yeah, like it's... <laughs> yeah. it's a graphic design or fashion design Neither. yeah 
absolutely. We we're in the same boat. I get yeah. I get it. This one's a little bit more general. What makes you feel excited about living and creating in this particular moment? So what is exciting for me is what I referred to at the top of the show, where it's like, because people now seem to have a better understanding of design, it kind of creates new opportunities for me, you know? And like, I've always been interested in collaboration, in kind of non-disciplinary design. And so it just means I can have new conversations because people understand what I'm talking about, right? So like, I just left my position at Tulane, but that was such an exciting time where I worked with a professor in Latin. I worked with someone in public health and someone in math, and then also someone in dance. And and we were, we could talk about design and we could design experiences. So it could be, we could describe it as, for example, a math experience grounded in design, or maybe it was a design experience grounded in math, right? The Latin professor created, I didn't work in her class, but she created a design class around Latin. And then I was just kind of like her sounding board, you know? And so I think what for me is really exciting right now, and then my colleague in public health, we did a whole year of research around public health, but using design methods and strategies and all that. So that's what I'm really excited about right now, that I can maybe more legitimately pursue my interest in other disciplines, because everyone, a lot of people now understand what design is, which they might not have 20 years ago. That's awesome. And my final off the dome is if you can become an instant expert in anything, what would that instant expertise be in? Well, this is like weirdly random <laughs> 3D printing ceramic. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just, I do have a little bit of, so I'm a product designer originally, which some people know, some people don't. And I've spent some years dabbling in ceramics. And so I'd love a way to bring, you know, th- at the back of my mind, there is that product designer. Or at the back of my personality, there is that product designer. And I'd love to just have that expertise, which maybe to some extent I've lost over the years because I've become less machinery and technology kind of focused. And so it would be an instant way for me to be able to get back into making and exploring new technology, which in fact are things that I'm interested in, even though, yes, I always talk about positionality and emancipation and, you know, all of that stuff. I'm, I am excited about making as well. And so that could be something. That is awesome. You know, <laughs> making is critical. So those are awesome answers. Now I want to get us to our final segment, which is the drop. And the drop can be anything is just, or any number of things is a recommendation of so anything that's we think our listeners should be aware of or a part of, and I'm coming in with a drop. I hope you have one or two. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. <laughs> okay. Well, my drop is a book called The Long Deep Grudge by Tony Gilpin. And it's an interesting story because it's based in labor and it's all about the history of organizing primarily at International Harvester, which at one point control like 90% of the global farm machinery, but it's more than that. And it doesn't sound like it would be a good read. It's kind of wonky, but it's not. Like it's a 
really interesting story about labor organizing radical politics. And the more I read it, the more I realize that we're having the exact same story today. So that's my drop, the long, deep grudge. All right. Well, my drop, I've referred to like twice already during the show, but I am in love right now with Aurora Levens-Morales, who is alive, who is writing actively, an independent academic, writing essays about radical essays about feminism from the Caribbean. So I love her work, and I think that people should buy her work. And then my other drop is our book club, <laughs> which I hope that you can share in the link in the, um, you know, in the feed from your podcast. But I mean, really, we meet at least once a month. Last year, we met twice a month, but once a month, finding works of people from outside of Europe and North America that designers should be reading. And I've expanded my own references hugely, bigly, <laughs> since we started that. I don't lead all of the sessions. I don't even lead one, a quarter of the sessions, right? We are like a really kind of democratic st structure where different people, either we invite people, people write, reach out to us and tell us what books they want to share. And so it's always a space of learning. So that's the second drop. Those are amazing. And like I said, I actually wrote down in case the book that you referenced wasn't your drop. I already wrote down like medicine stories when you when you when you put it. I yeah. was like, okay, just in case that's not her drop, let me make sure I don't lose that. <laughs> no, it's like fantastic. And you know, like I listen to I don't read as much as people think. I listen more than I read. And because she is like, I think she's also a poet. It means her writing is just very poetic. You know, you could listen to it and say, oh my God. <laughs> she, and she gives people action. You know, here's what you need to be doing to change the world. Like, yeah, yes. <laughs> I'm definitely going to check it out. Like in many ways, the drop is completely self-serving because I get all these great recommendations on things uh, to yeah, do. Yeah. But I also know, because listeners tell me that they really appreciate the drops that guests share and they go on and get the books or watch the link or watch the movie or whatever it is. So I think they're an invaluable resource. I think at some point I'm 85 episodes in, I think at some point I'm going to have wow. to like collect like all the different drops and just create like this mega universe of, of the drops, <laughs> all the various yeah. drops we've had, but both from myself and from the from guests that I've had. You know, that I would be really be... impressive. It's like we keep saying we're going to do something similar with the book club. You know, we're like, okay, we're going to synthesize all of the books and look for themes and stuff like that. But we can't do it. Right? Yeah. But, but I mean, maybe you could create a list of links. Yes. Yeah, in absolutely. Your, of your drops. Yes. I'm going to add it to the, like everybody else, the myriad of projects that we have to do. But um, yeah. we're going to get it all done. This has yeah. been absolutely amazing conversation, a great way for me to be going into the rest of my Thursday. And I want to thank you again for being on a deep dive with me. Thank you for the invitation. This was a lot of fun. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far Phil. 
to all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.